Hey everybody, welcome back to Case Acquaint. This week's episode will have a couple of different components to it. We're going to review a case you might already know something about. And we're also going to be speaking with a special guest named Kelly Snyder, founder of the Find Me Group. The Find Me Group assisted in the investigation of that case, so we feel honored to speak with Kelly about his experience, and we'll talk about the unique method the Find Me Group has developed in order to provide value to investigators and also victims' loved ones. First off, a couple updates. Natalie White's family has released more pictures of her tattoos. You can check them out by visiting their Facebook page at Where Is Natalie. Please do share if you're following this case, and don't forget the family has a GoFundMe set up for a reward or to support hiring a quality private investigator. Also, there have been developments in the Kimberly Graves case. It's already been widely reported that Kimberly's body was found in Lori State Park on January 10th after going missing back in December of 2017. She had been raped, strangled, and also suffered blunt force trauma. The person who's been charged is a 30-year-old guy by the name of Khalid White, who was known to Kimberly, although the nature of their relationship has not been released yet. He was charged on January 17, 2018, with eight felonies associated with Kimberly's death, and those are two counts of felony murder, first-degree murder after deliberation, sexual assault with a weapon resulting in serious bodily injury, robbery, tampering with a deceased body, identity theft, and motor vehicle theft. The reason he has two counts of felony murder right now is because in the state of Colorado, when you kill someone during the commission of another felony, like robbery or sexual assault, each of those adds another count. So what happened, they believe, was White killed Kimberly on the last day she was seen by others. That was December 4th, 2017. That day, a friend received a message from her that seemed suspicious because it was full of spelling mistakes. After that, nobody could get a hold of Kimberly. Four days later, some friends decided to go check on her, and there they found the glass in the back door of her house broken, the house ransacked, items stolen, and her dog, who Kimberly would never leave without making sure was cared for, was hiding under a bed. Thank goodness one of Kimberly's friends is now taking care of the dog. The house was ransacked at least one more time before friends could convince police to enter the home themselves. When police began to investigate, they had information that White might know something about Kimberly's disappearance. By then, he had already left town. That was a violation of his probation grant, so on December 20th, he was intercepted on a bus headed towards Las Vegas. Police found Kimberly's identification in his possession. Obviously, he must be considered innocent until proven guilty. A memorial fund has been created for Kimberly's children. If you'd like to contribute to that fund, we're going to go ahead and put that information on our website at caseacquaint.com. And it's going to be under the original post that we created back when Kim went missing. So let's get started. Now, we're departing slightly from our typical story today because, as y'all know, we don't usually cover 
number one, high-profile cases, and number two, those in which an arrest has already been made, usually. But because we're speaking with Kelly, we decided to profile a case in which authorities utilize the services of the Find Me group, among other search and rescue teams. And that case is the shocking murder of 13-year-old Dylan Redwine, a boy from Colorado. Custody fights can get nasty. Most of us have seen or heard of them in our own personal lives, and it can be astounding to hear what some people do to punish their former partners. On the Sunday before Thanksgiving of 2012, Dylan Redwine, who lived with his mom in Colorado Springs, Colorado, had to do what a lot of kids have to do at that time of year. He had to pack up some stuff and get on a plane for a court-ordered visit with a parent who was forced to pay child support, and so now that parent decided they wanted their visitation. The custody battle just added to the strain of this event, and Dylan had expressed discomfort around his dad, Mark Redwine. Still, Dylan had plans for those days. He'd been texting with a friend who had invited him to stay overnight that evening at his house. But Mark Redwine told him no, so Dylan had exchanged texts with his friend, making more plans to visit the friend at 6.30 the next morning. And that was at 9.37 p.m. on November 18, 2012. That was the last time anyone ever heard from Dylan Redwine. Dylan's relationship with Mark was strained. Dylan didn't like spending time with someone who preferred to sit at home and drink all day, according to Dylan's mom, Elaine. And Dylan didn't want to go to Mark's house on Thanksgiving. What specific tragic events took place that night, ultimately resulting in the loss of young Dylan's life? Mark Redwine's version of the next day is as follows. He left his house at 7.30 a.m. that morning, being careful not to wake up a sleeping Dylan. When he returned from his errands at 11.30 a.m., Mark told police that he took a nap. Later, by about 4.15 p.m., Dylan's friends received a visit from Mark to see if Dylan was with them. They explained that they'd been attempting to reach Dylan all day. After that, Mark sent his ex-wife Elaine a text asking if she had heard from Dylan. Upon receiving the text from Redwine, Elaine later stated that she was immediately concerned. She felt that Dylan wouldn't do anything like leave without at least letting her know. Elaine and her family got in the car and drove the six hours to Durango, where she immediately filed a missing persons report. Monday night and all day on Tuesday, the authorities searched for Dylan, but found no trace of him. Elaine made contact with a local search and rescue, and she also met with the initial investigators on Dylan's case, who Elaine would later describe as worthless. She said that they sat there for a couple of days because investigators said Dylan had decided to run away and was running around in the mountains behind Mark's cabin. Elaine did not accept that. That investigator was replaced. They searched the area. Many community members came out to help with the search. According to Elaine, Mark Redwine did not assist in these searches. He also refused to talk to Elaine. Mark's house was searched multiple times. These searches resulted in the seizure of Mark's truck, a washing machine, a couch, and flooring, among other items. 
People have often wondered about Dylan's cell phone. Well, Dylan's phone was not the type that had GPS, and the phone had been off since Sunday night. Elaine lived in Durango for a month, sleeping in the garage of a family friend while searchers used dive teams, helicopters, dogs, and over 300 volunteers. Then, with Christmas upon them, Elaine had to return home. In the meantime, Mark was making fun of searchers and refusing a polygraph after the first one was deemed inconclusive. That didn't stop him from talking to the press. Dylan was the light of my life. Not is, was. Did Mark tell police that Dylan was the light of his life? But police asked Mark, had Dylan ever bled in the house? No, said Mark. The house, located about 20 miles from Durango in a remote area, had been remodeled recently. So when cadaver dogs hit on many areas of the home having the scent of a decomposing body, the investigators looked more closely and they found Dylan's blood under the rug in the living room. Dylan's loved ones raised $50,000 for a reward for information leading to Dylan's rescue. A task force was formed by authorities, which involved La Plata County Sheriff's Office, the Durango Police Department, the FBI, and the CBI, which is Colorado Bureau of Investigation. Elaine returned to the Durango area several times to continue searching for Dylan, and unfortunately, she lost her job. A group of approximately 20 people demonstrated publicly in front of Mark Redwine's home. They were chanting and carrying signs that said things like, No walk, all talk, and why do you hide? They also demanded that he engage with authorities and other searchers. By February of 2013, the case had attracted enough attention that both of Dylan's parents taped a Dr. Phil show. Redwine's first wife, Betsy, was also there, and she stated, I believe that Mark could do something to harm Dylan because he has a violent temper and he snaps easily. She described an incident when Redwine threw her to the floor and punched her in the face multiple times. In June of 2013, another large search was organized. This is where the Find Me group comes in. As you heard in the intro, we spoke with Kelly from the Find Me group. Now, the Find Me group is an organization founded in 2002, originally in order to help locate missing children. Over the years, they have expanded their services, and now they offer resources for missing persons, homicide victims, and they're also particularly focused on human trafficking victims, which as it turns out, are also in many instances missing persons, both children and adults. So the Find Me group is unique in their methodology, which you will hear Kelly explain in detail when we begin talking about the Dylan Redwine case. And towards the end of this clip, Kelly brings it back around to address more details about their participation in Dylan's search. Here's what Kelly Snyder, founder of the Find Me group, had to say about Dylan's case and the Find Me group's singular approach to a search and rescue effort. We're the ones that actually found him. It's, you know, literally done by psychics telling you a GPS coordinate and you go to that coordinate and find a body. 
You know, I have only heard of one case ever being solved by a psychic, and that was on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries that I saw one time. Part of the problem is is no one does the research. We've solved 87 cases using psychics alone, 100% their information. So, you know, the people out there that are the, the skeptics and the people that don't believe in psychics, you know, always say there's never been a case solved by a psychic when in fact, there's probably hundreds, but my particular group has solved 87 of them, 100% utilizing psychic information. Well, when we receive a request from a family or law enforcement, what I give to the psychics is a photograph of the missing person the last place the person was seen, and then I asked them to tell me what are the circumstances surrounding the disappearance, and then tell me the current location, you know, deceased or alive. And then they have to provide me GPS coordinates, not just something generic like, uh, you know, I, I see the person is located somewhere downtown Atlanta, Georgia. I mean, because that's meaningless. So we started the GPS coordinate thing literally in 2007 because I was working with the police department in Austin, Texas, and we were giving them really good information, narrowing it down to about a half mile. But he just kept saying, you know, I can't, you know, get 500 people out there to search this half mile area that you're, you're giving us. He said, can you narrow it down a little bit? Mm -hmm. And I couldn't at the time, but that's when we started this uh, GPS thing. And what happens is the, the members in the group utilize their psychic abilities. And then I asked them to take it a step further and then go on Google Earth or another mapping system and try to find out what they're receiving from their abilities and then try to duplicate what they're seeing and duplicate that in Google Earth or a mapping system. And they all have different modalities as to how they do it, but essentially, you know, it's that's the the formal request of each and every member. The group of uh, currently 117 psychics, oh, and wow. I give it to all of them. And what usually happens is I'll get a cluster of maybe 10 or 12 or 15 people in the group saying the same thing. That doesn't mean it's accurate. All it means is that it's something that I think that the police should, you know, concentrate on simply because that's how it's worked in the past. Hmm. And uh, so in an average case, I'll send it out to these 117 psych psychics in the group. And then I, on average, I'll get 60 responses just because, you know, the members are not required 100% to respond on each and every case. And then, of course, they all have jobs and lives and children and husbands and things of that nature that, you know, prevent them to work on each and every case. And we do about three to four a month. Mm. And we only work a case one at a time. We don't, you know, have six or seven cases going on simultaneously oh okay. and that's part part of the downside from my group but 
you know, as far as we know, we've done the research probably 20 times. We are the only group in the world that does it the way we do it and actually has psychics uh, working, you know, together, but not individual. They have to work individually on their case using their abilities. They can't communicate at all on any of the investigations until after they've submitted their report. Oh, wow. And probably 95% of the psychics in the group don't communicate with the other psychics anyway, just because they don't have time to find out, hey, what did you get? And what did you get, Martha? What did you get, Bill? You know, that kind of thing. Hmm. They just give me their information and then go about their lives. We went to uh, the Bayfield area out of Durango on Dylan's case three separate times. The very first time we went, we didn't find his remains, but they wanted certain other parts of the body. And ultimately, you know, I mean, we've stayed on top of that ever since uh, we went the very first time. So it's just something that, you know, we like to keep on top of just because of, you know, who's involved and why he died. So, you know, all of a sudden became personal. I can't give you too much information, but his skull was a mile away, a little less than a mile. And part of that could have been the way the body was disposed of, but it also could have meant, you know, the fact that uh, there are so many animals up there and uh, they they know for a fact that the part of the, the remains that were transferred all over the place was, was due to the animals in the area but as far as the skull and the and the pelvis and certain things that uh, you know were never were not found the skull was just recently but uh, uh, you know there's there's some investigative thought as to why the skull was so far away and it had nothing to do with the animals so hmm. uh, you know and I wish I could tell you why but I can't it's just uh, you know, a sensitive portion of the investigation. But, oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah that's it, fine. Yeah. It's very, uh, that one is very personal to us, especially, you know, because we met the family on numerous occasions and uh, and then went there and spent a ton of time and three separate trips. So a uh, person of interest, I think, is uh, is about to meet his, uh, his doom. It was great because you couldn't have scripted it any better. I mean, we... The police had been looking for literally seven and a half months, and we went there and found him the first day. If anyone is in the general vicinity of where we are, our dogs will find them. They're, they're literally almost 100% accurate. It's not easy because our training instructor, uh, she requires every dog to be 2,000 hours before certification. Now, just think about that hour-wise that is devoted to training a dog. The only other organization in the world that requires even close to that kind of training is the U.S. Air Force, and they do 14, 14 or 1,500 hours, and our group does 2,000. You can't get a better dog. So, and that's Arizona Search, Track, and Rescue. It's not my organization, but I've been partnered with them now for 16, or actually 17 years. I was was using them when I was with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children uh, about 19 years ago. I I hooked up with the founder and owner of the Arizona Search, Track, and Rescue. So I've been working with her for almost 19 years now. 
Now, as Kelly mentioned, their group traveled from Phoenix to Durango three separate times to help in the effort to find Dylan. On November 1, 2015, hikers found a human skull about a mile and a half away from where the first set of remains had been found in 2013. The skull's location was not consistent with animal activity, rather it was more consistent with human deliberate placement. A Durango Herald article quoted a Colorado Parks and Wildlife officer who stated that no animal known in the area could transport a body up the mountain from Redwine's home to the first recovery site, let alone the additional 1.5 miles through the terrain from the first site to the second site. It was later reported that the skull had suffered blunt force injury in two separate areas and after death had sustained cuts from a knife, none of which could be caused by animal activity. Corey Redwine, Dylan's older brother, told a newspaper reporter that he was sad but, quote, it's better than not knowing, wondering every single second of every single day. We found Dylan. That doesn't really mean all that much if we can't find justice and bring peace for him. Elaine talked about the challenges a loved one of a missing person faces. She said the La Plata County Sheriff's Office had been stingy with information, but that she continued to work closely with the people there because, she said, people expect law enforcement to take care of everything, but there's a lot of people that don't understand. Cases often go cold because families in the public stop pressing. The district attorney decided to ask for help from the Colorado District Attorney's Council. With their help, he decided to bring the case to a grand jury. The grand jury indictment contains many important elements of the case against Mark Redwine, and many of them were present from almost the beginning. It referred to Dylan's blood found in multiple locations of Mark's house, including on the couch, a coffee table, on the floor beneath a rug, and on another piece of furniture. And the cadaver dogs indicating a deceased person having occupied the living room, the washing machine, and the bed of Mark's pickup truck. The indictment states there are indications of the presence of a large source of human remains. The indictment also mentioned the surveillance videos from the airport in Walmart, where no personal interaction between Mark and Dylan could be seen, as well as the testimony of several witnesses who said Mark and Dylan did not get along, and Dylan didn't want to visit Mark that Thanksgiving. Mark's neighbor testified that an exterior front porch light on the red wine cabin was on at 2 a.m. on November 19th, and later, while it was still dark out, the light was turned off, indicating someone was awake at those early hours. Next, it alluded to an alleged conversation between Mark and Dylan's half-brother, Brandon Redwine, who was the child shared by Mark and his first wife, Betsy. During that conversation, which occurred shortly after the first set of remains were found, Brandon testified that Mark had mentioned blunt force trauma to the skull and that they would need to find the skull before they would be able to determine the cause of death. Also, in an interview with investigators, Betsy told them that Mark had said in the past that if he ever needed to get rid of a body, he'd leave it in the mountains. Finally, there is the subject of the pictures Dylan had planned on confronting Mark about. Some lewd images of him Dylan and Corey found on a camera of Mark's. In the images, he's wearing women's clothing, a wig, and makeup. And he appears to be eating feces. Elaine told the press that she believed Dylan may have mentioned the pictures to Mark Redwine and that 
Something didn't sit well with Mark, according to her, and Mark reacted in a very violent way. Dylan's brother said that Redwine was always cruel and always violent. Some friends of Elaine's testified that after Dylan's disappearance, they confronted Mark about the images, at which time Mark Redwine responded by picking up a log and raising it at them as if to throw it. On Saturday, July 22, 2017, Mark Redwine was arrested for the killing of Dylan Redwine. He's been charged with second-degree murder and child abuse resulting in death. The following December, Redwine's attorneys requested more time to examine documents related to the case, and that's where the case stands. We're going to keep you updated on the progression of this case as it's not over. Elaine Hall has since said that she knew from day one that Mark Redwine was involved with the disappearance of Dylan, and while she was not taken seriously at first, the La Plata County Sheriff's Office should be credited with acting quickly to hone in on a person who was ultimately charged with Dylan's disappearance. Dylan being a child, the authorities were thankfully required to act, which as we know, is not required for adults. This case highlights why it's so important for law enforcement and the family of the missing to work closely together. Dylan was a minor, so that made it impossible for authorities to ignore. But there is no evidence at first that a crime had been committed, right? They thought he was a runaway. So if Dylan had been an adult, had been murdered by his dad, and had been disposed of in the mountain, as alleged in the indictment, there's a good chance Dylan would still be up there and he'd be just another NamUs page. That is something we need to once and for all demand that our political representatives change. You can't blame law enforcement, and I realize that we do give them a hard time. But the reality is, they don't have to investigate those cases. It's up to someone's discretion. And due to the unrealistic decisions some of these investigators make, the discretion needs to be taken out of their hands to a certain extent. They should have the same responsibility to find out what happened to an adult as a child with the inclusion of certain parameters, of course. Dismissing the disappearance of someone by saying it's not illegal to disappear only works in the rare instance that someone actually does walk away from their life. But it is illegal to make someone disappear, and using that flimsy excuse so you don't have to do your job has contributed to the absolute ruination of many families' lives. Families will spend decades trying to investigate when they have no authority and no ability to be shown what information was gathered, if any, by investigators when they were working on the case. I hate to say it, but two perfect examples of this epidemic are Randy Leach and Robin Abrams. If you didn't listen to our very first full-length episode, The Dead and Missing of Lumberton, I'd encourage you to also check that one out. There are departments that refuse to investigate murders, much less investigate missing persons, and there isn't anything the people of Lumberton can do about that. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We here at Case Acquaint understand that there are some who disagree with the use of psychics. Even Kelly Snyder admits that psychics are correct, at best, 65% of the time. Kelly was kind enough to give us a fair amount of his time. And we're going to be releasing a bonus episode soon with more of our interview with Kelly. In it, we're going to hear more about the Find Me Group's AI software project 
human trafficking, and most importantly, Kelly's advice on what you should do if your family member goes missing or is killed and the case goes cold. The Find Me Group is not a psychic organization. They employ both traditional and non-traditional methods in their unselfish quest to help others. I want to thank Kelly for speaking with me, and I'd like to encourage anyone who wants to learn more about the Find Me Group to visit their website at findmegroup.org. And also, don't forget to listen to that bonus episode, which we hope will be helpful. Finally, I want to let you know that we are now on YouTube. We've been working hard on converting our past episodes to the correct format, and we're almost caught up. And additionally, we should be available on most major platforms. If you can't find us on your favorite platform, please let us know. Thank you so much for listening today. We'll talk again soon.